So we turn our attention this morning to Matthew chapter 26, and we will be looking at uh, verses 6 to 13. And as we look to that account, uh, I want to first read the particular context. And this morning's passage will bring us to other portions of Scripture. Uh, but I want to read uh, verses. I want to read verses six to thirteen specifically, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible version. It reads: Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, "Why this waste?" For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. May God bless the reading of His Word. Uh, This text marks the gradual approach to the last Passover, which is in this particular text, one that we'll read even this morning as we look toward communion. But it also marks our approach to what is known as the Passion Week. And it is those sequence of events that take place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as His earthly ministry is coming to an end. And as that earthly ministry is coming to an end, he is going to be crucified, buried and raised from the dead for the salvation and hope of the elect. Uh, But as we look to this text, we are looking at some of those last events. And verse 6 specifically points us to the Lord Jesus as he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And we have to mention that there are those um, who postulate and who falsely teach that there is contradiction in Scripture. And in doing so, they point to passages such as this one and relate them to other gospel accounts that parallel, in a sense, what has taken place uh, in the text before us. And so it's fitting for me, as I'm teaching this, to bring those before you, to bring the other gospel accounts before you from the other writers in order for us to develop a proper chronology and understanding of how the Gospels fit together, but also to be able to refute those who would categorize themselves as liberal scholars. Even some may be called uh, conservative scholars, but may uphold liberal views. Uh, But in either case, our role is not simply to teach this as though it's a history lesson, but it is to make a defense for what is true concerning the Gospels and how those Gospels are unified together And there are no contradictions in Scripture whatsoever at any point. And so this morning we'll spend our time not only in Matthew 26, but we'll look at similar accounts that take place in the other Gospels. And these accounts are similar across the board, uh, but we must come to terms with what Matthew, as the human author, under uh, under the power and inspiration of the divine author, has written concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically in this instance. And so there are comparisons and distinctions to be made. And 
those are specific enough where we make those distinctions along the line as how Jesus was worshipped in the matter of being anointed with oil. And so specifically we consider three other chapters where events like this take place. And I'll kind of give you a spoiler alert. In Matthew 14 it is the exact account as this one. I'm sorry, Mark 14. It is the exact account as this one. But we'll consider Mark 14. We'll look at John chapter 12 and Luke chapter 7 to help us understand the timeline of events and some of the things that are taking place in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13. And so if you'll follow with me, I'll be providing you with distinctions. And our sermon is essentially called uh, a memoriam of the gospel, a memoriam of the gospel, or I would even say a memoriam within the gospel. When we look at when we look at uh, Matthew chapter twenty six, uh, this is not the first time that an act such as this one has been done to the Lord. It's not the first time. In fact, our text uh, our text assumes that there are other occasions by which this particular act in its similarity has taken place. But there is a sense of worship of the Lord Jesus Christ in the context that we're looking at this morning that ties all the acts of anointing him with oil together. And so let us first look to the other accounts as they are found. And as I had said a few moments ago, uh, the one thing we'll assume is that Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 are exactly the same. They are the exact same Account related to the anointing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you were to look at John chapter 12, the woman who anointed Jesus is identified as Mary. She's identified as Mary. Whereas in Luke 7, she is simply known as a sinful woman. So in John chapter 12, there's a woman who comes and she anoints the Lord and her name is Mary. In Luke chapter 7, she is simply known as a sinful woman. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in Bethany, likely near Jerusalem. He's at the house of Simon the leper. It tells us that as our text begins in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 26. However, in John chapter 12, he is in Bethany, but most likely near Capernaum which is in the region of Galilee, which is not the same Bethany as the Bethany in Jerusalem. There are two Bethanies. Luke 7 identifies, as a comparison to the other two that we mentioned, identifies that Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. Now, I mention all these accounts because each of them demonstrate to us that Jesus is worshipped by this act of anointing him with oil. And again, we want to make a defense. We want to make a ready and reasoned and spiritual and biblical and, 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 and wise uh, proclamation of what is said over and against those who will say that the gospel writers contradict themselves. So we have to find ourselves in the middle of the details and explain them. In, uh, in Matthew 26, the act of consecration is just that. For in Matthew 26, if you look at our account in that one, 
We have a woman in verse 7 came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? And so she is standing behind Christ as he's reclined at a table and pours this oil on his head. Thus the oil is pouring down from his head to his body. In John chapter 12, you have Mary anointing his feet. Mary is anointing his feet. However, in Luke chapter 7, the sinful woman demonstrating her faith and fidelity to Christ is pouring oil on his head as he reclined at the table. And so you have, so far as we mentioned, things that are being said in the three particular instances. And it's not that you have three gospel writers saying things that are contradicting each other. What I'm getting at is that you have three different events. You have three different events in which the Lord is certainly the object. He's the centerpiece. He's the cornerstone of worship and affection in each of those events. But let us continue. In Matthew 26, you're given a timeline. And that timeline is given to you related to the Passover. And it's given to you in the verses previous to our text. If you look at the preceding verses, specifically Matthew chapter 26, verse 2, it says, you know that after two two days, the Passover is coming. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So you have this event in Matthew chapter 26. It is happening two days before the Passover. Whereas in John 12, the anointing of his feet takes place, uh, or the anointing of his feet with oil takes place six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. And so let's look to that particular account there. And we would also, we would also uphold at this church, as we teach through the Gospels, what is known as Matthean priority. That means that Matthew is written as the first gospel among the four. And so we stand in a long line of the defense that has been made through that through the ages. But we also uh, stand in a long line understanding that uh, that, that has been uh, historically proven so as the first gospel. And that's important. It's important to know that because in the realm of so-called critical understanding of Scripture, you have those who say that John is the first gospel that's written, or those who say that Mark is the first, or Luke is the first. But I mentioned that to tell you that if you look at John chapter 12, and you look at the timeline that's before us, verse 1, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Mary was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard 
and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then look at this, because this account is before our account. Look at what's said next and who says it. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Verse 6 tells you his motive. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And so you have six days before the Passover, this event taking place where Judas raises a stir about this very expensive oil that is being used to anoint the Lord. Two days before the Passover, the disciples make the same comment. And we'll get more into that very soon. But the anointing of his feet in John chapter 12 takes place six days before the Passover. So you have an event like this one taking place before the event in our account. However, in Luke 7, it does not specify exactly when these events take place. But since Luke was writing an, a historical orderly account to Theophilus, we are able to place his account early on in the ministry of Christ. We don't know exactly when, but we know it's very early on. As Christ had yet to complete his parables by the time Luke's, uh, Luke writes what he does, and he had yet to send out the 70, and he had yet to even curse the Pharisees. Or comparable to Matthew's gospel, he had yet to approach the time in which he would prophesy concerning the future events related to his kingdom. So when the sinful woman known as the sinful woman, is anointing the Lord at the Pharisees, uh, at the home of a, of a Pharisee, it is very, on in, very early on in his ministry. And so the purpose of the act of anointing, uh, of using anointing oil in Matthew 26 and John 12 are plainly stated. For Matthew 26, 12, it says to prepare Christ for his burial. In John chapter 12, verse 8, it says the same thing. It says in verse 7, before verse 8, Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And so in those two accounts, distinct as they are, the purposes are the same. The individuals perhaps are different. And are certainly different, but the purpose is the same. And Jesus, in fact, said to her to keep the oil, keep the preservation of the oil. The oil was to be kept in John chapter 12, to be kept and preserved for his burial. So she was not to use all the oil, but to use what was left for his burial. Not to use it to... Uh, to sell and give the proceeds to the poor, knowing that those proceeds with Judas, as long as Judas Iscariot had the money box, they were never going to make it to the poor anyway. And related to these events, we get to the complaints. I have mentioned them. And this is perhaps probably one of the most important features outside of the reason for which 
these events take place. Because it shows you the poison that Judas Iscariot, the traitor, was injecting into the minds and hearts of the disciples. The influence. Not only the influence that he had over the money, but the influence that the money had over him. In Judas, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 12, Judas complained two days prior to the account in Matthew 26 that the perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. And then you see in Matthew 26, the disciples, two days after the account where Judas complained, also said the same thing. So he said it before them, and then they follow suit. It's showing you a matter of his influence. They say the same thing he says. In Luke 7, the much early anointing of the Lord's head with oil, the Pharisees complained that Jesus would not have allowed this sinner to touch him if he knew how sinful she was. So that was the complaint. That was the complaint from the Pharisee, from the Pharisees, who saw Jesus accept this worship from this sinner in the much earlier account in Luke 7. So you have three different accounts taking place. But each of them vital to understanding Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the sacrificial, the perfect sacrificial lamb upon which the sins of the elect would be placed. So they all are unified in that way. But we are looking at three accounts, and it's vital to our faith and understanding of the Holy Gospels to affirm these distinctions and comparisons. And I mention that because of what I said earlier, that we have to keep all of our enemies, as one of the Puritans, I believe it was, said, uh, we have to keep all of our enemies at sword's point. Because there are wolves who seek to look at these things at face value only. The so-called higher critics of the Bible claiming the, the scripture at points such as these and, and such as what I have set before you this morning contradicts itself. Thus they aim to discredit the full testimony of the Gospels as the revelation of God himself to man. And they give a lazy reading and a lazy interpretation and come up with specious attacks and ideas that demonstrate somehow that these gospel writers have contradicted themselves. And then it trickles down to Christians, uh, those who are profession Christians, and they begin to entertain these novel arguments. They begin to echo these novel arguments. And that very means of arguing shows you the example of even a man like Judas, who began to argue who begin to complain, and, 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 and in doing so, the idea of it in the languages is that his matter of complaining was not simply he said something at a passing glance, but it's that he began to make much of the fact that this oil was not sold and given to the poor. So much so that he influenced the disciples to think just as he did. Now, was it their sinful flesh? Absolutely. But he capitalized. He was the son of Satan, an opportunist. And he capitalized off of their being disgruntled in some way, shape, or form. And he'd argued that it was better to give this oil to the poor. And so you see them a few days later 
make the same argument he does. And this is why you have to refute error at every single turn. You have to refute complaining against God at every single turn. You have to refute those who, who, who try to set before you uh, something that they would call God's wisdom when really they don't have the wisdom of God's word. You have to refute actions as much as you have to refute words. And you see that in Judas. Because the men who would look at this gospel account and call it contradictory, they are poisoners and complainers like Judas. They're just like Judas. They poison the text. They poison how people think about the text. They get people to grumble against God and his word overall. They're just like Judas. For as I've said, for we see in Judas in John chapter 12, he complains in such a way so as to cast the same doubt as to the economics of this act by the woman. And the disciples take up his grumbling against the Lord in Matthew 26. And do you know what he was trying to do here? Two days earlier, he led a charge to divert worship away from the Lord due to economic and financial inconvenience. We are here today. That there are people dressed in religious garb trying to divert your worship away from the Lord due to economic and financial inconvenience. Oh, and a matter of your health as well. As well as, stop me if you've heard this one before, as well as holding up the plight of the poor against the worship as Christ as if he were the statesman of the poor. This is not philanthropy, it's treachery. It's treachery. And we'll talk more about it next week, but this is a treacherous man using the poor against Christ himself. Setting up a false separation between poverty and the worship of Christ and claiming to offer a solution for your poverty by economics. An economic policy that diverts away from the worship of God. But John tells us very plainly because John actually writes his motive as we read it. And let me read the account to you again. After he said this, John tells you why he said it. So that there's no mistake. Look at verse 6. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. But because he was a thief. That's why he said it. That's why he has so much to say about the poor. That's why the poor lives mattered. They mattered because he was a thief. And they mattered to him because he could make his money. If you continue to put more money in the box, he could pilfer more money out of the box. As he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And all the while, Jesus knew this. Jesus knew it. And we'll talk about it next week. But he was a son of hell. He was a son of perdition. And I'll tell you that the sin of Judas, and there were many, many teach that it's treachery. Treachery certainly was one of them, but he was a thief. 
He was a thief in more ways than one. He wasn't simply stealing money. He was diverting people's worship away from Christ. So he was robbing God of his glory as well. And so many, many people will teach and have taught about Judas. And we'll get there again next week. And many have said that Judas has gone out with the disciples. He preached with the disciples. And then they make their way and fast forward to his treachery. But I would say it doesn't matter that he did all those things. Because he did them so that you would put money in the box so that he could steal the money. How about we start talking about that Judas? Because there's so many doing that today from the pulpit, from the churches. Men getting removed from the church for doing those things. And so there's so many who talk about Judas's treachery. And even the world knows that Judas is a treacherous man. But there's so many who are stealing the honor and glory due Christ alone. What makes him different from Judas? Judas was not concerned with the oil. He wasn't concerned with the act of worship toward the Lord. He was stealing from Jesus Christ. He was a thief. And as a thief, he wasn't trying to save 300 denarii. He was trying to ensure it passed through his hand so he could steal it. And we know in John chapter 4, look at John chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. When Judas said this, otherwise blanket statement that would have seemed virtuous, he had already intended to betray Jesus. It was already in his heart and mind. He was already moving in that direction. In our text, as we look to Matthew chapter 26, specifically verses 8 and 9, but the disciples were indignant when they saw, uh, when they saw the woman do this, uh, this blessed act upon Christ of anointing Him with oil. But the disciples were indignant. Again, you have a different event, but you have the same reaction among his disciples after Judas says what he says. But the, the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And it's not so much that Jesus is making a statement that he does not care about the poor. He certainly cares about the poor. In fact, in Deuteronomy, he speaks very plainly. Uh, Yahweh speaks very plainly to the sons of Israel through Moses on how they ought to conduct themselves toward the poor. But what Jesus is not concerned with is exploiting the poor. Exploiting the poor. Or his disciples exploiting the poor. Or diverting worship away from him in the name of economic feasibility. But he had already planned to betray him. And in our text, 
the disciples were influenced by their sin nature, but also the wickedness of Judas among them. Jesus refuted them. He refuted them in this text by showing that her act was an act of worship, love, and reverence toward him in verse 10. She received eternal good from him, her salvation, and she could not help but return temporal good and eternal worship to him by her worship. So she demonstrates worship to him because she had received her salvation from him. It was not so with Judas. Judas was a son of hell. So do you know what his interests were? The things of this world. His interest was the kingdom of this world. And how he could make for an expedient and profitable life in in this world alone. The poor were not to be used in verse 11, as Jesus says what he says. The poor were not to be used as some religious financial Ponzi scheme. And they were not to be some means of spiritual leverage set against the worship of Christ. As long as the world is fallen, there would always be those who are poor. As long as the world is fallen, there will always be those who are poor. Why? Because Jesus is pointing to those who took advantage of them. And he came... He came not only to judge them, but he came to save some. But the context, our context is Christ himself was saying he would not remain on the earth for long. So these unparalleled acts of worship while he was on the earth were certainly more important than solving abject poverty in society. And so, this woman was to be held in memoriam. She was to be held in memoriam. Jesus tells you the purpose that she did it in Matthew chapter 26, verse 12. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she, she did it to prepare me for burial. Verse 13, truly I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So this woman is to be held in memoriam. For the worship she gave is set apart from any philanthropy, any common charity, and certainly is set as distinct from the treachery of Judas. Today's world would look at Judas as a thriving politician, a man with the times, for wanting to take oil and sell it. In order to give to the poor. But Jesus makes a distinction. Not only between this woman and his disciples in that moment. Demonstrating the the purpose for which they were thinking the oil should be used. For the disciples and the woman did share a common bond in belonging to Christ. But the distinction is certainly between the woman and Judas. The treachery of Judas. Whereas with the disciples you have a momentary lapse of sound judgment. Due to the influence of one of their own. And so he needed to be removed. And sent to where he belonged. But the gospel itself was to be preached. That's one. 
And this woman is to be a reminder of what it means to truly remain undeterred in faithfulness and worship to Christ. And so given the unparalleled event, she is to serve as a reminder of faithfulness. She is to serve as one whose name ought to be held in memoriam, whose act must be held in memoriam. And to her name, we're not given exactly what her name is. But we know that she's a woman who loved the Lord. She's a woman whose act is certainly joined to the gospel that saves. And this is not to say we must preach her. I suspect it's why we're not given her name. It's not to say that she's a mediator between us and Jesus. I suspect again in this account it's why we're not given her name. Lest men preach her. It is also not to say that she is the gospel message. But rather her act is joined to the proclamation of the gospel. In the sense that it is a testimony of her faithfulness to Christ. So that if we're going to talk about the treachery of Judas. We have to talk about the faithfulness of this woman. If we're going to throughout the ages that we have left in the church age, expound upon the gospels themselves and explain generation after generation, preacher after preacher, what this means, we have to talk about the woman. She lives on perpetually in the gospel narrative. And I wish that we could stop there. There's a sentiment about reading this text where we wish we could just stop at the memorial. But even in that wish, my hope, my aim, my goal is to expound line for line what the word of God says. And so the next time that we're together, we'll look at the opposite. For today, we've looked at this memorial, talked a little bit about the opposite, but we'll look at the opposite because there is one who is not to be held in memorial, but as a caution. A warning to stand for all time. We have a woman who is held as a symbol of faithfulness. And the other is a symbol of treachery against Jesus Christ. Let's read the passage and we'll end our time that way. And one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So you have this account. We'll look at it the next time that we're together concerning Judas. And we're thankful for this woman who proved faithful and serves as a memoriam of the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.